The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Uh, we appreciate your being here, uh, especially the chemistry club sitting up in the front row, way to represent. <laughs> Uh, and also uh, Jason Beardsley, chair of the English department, and his assistant chair, Joanne Lawrence. Uh, maybe I got the titles mixed up. But, uh, and uh, everybody else, Jamie Williams, the chair of chemistry. Thank you for getting your soldiers out, so to speak. And uh, thank you for to Kirsten Elliott and her comrades on the associates. Mr. <laughs> Excuse me, yeah, Mr. Rollhop, Dr. Rollhop, and but uh, Rachel Dembski and Marilyn Landau, a great team to work with, and without their efforts, we wouldn't have been able to have this program. So, since Dr. Hoffman has a lot of slides to cover, I'm going to turn it right over to Jennifer to do the introduction to him, and we will proceed accordingly. Uh, hope you can stay till the end; it should be interesting. Thank you. Hi, so I am Jennifer Shea. I'm part of the Department of Physical Sciences, and I'd like to introduce our speaker, Dr. Roald Hoffman. Uh, Dr. Hoffman started his scientific career, like many of our students, as a pre-med student at Columbia University. And in a candid interview, he once said that it took most of his undergraduate career to confess to his parents that he no longer wanted to be a doctor. Uh, and he went on to do his PhD at Harvard, and decided about three quarters of the way through that he wanted to be a chemist. So with that, fortunately, he made that fateful decision, became a chemist, and in the past 50 years has published over 600 papers uh, and shared the Nobel Prize with Kenichi Fukui in 1981 uh, for his work done with collaborator Robert Burns Woodward. Uh, Woodward, unfortunately, passed away before the award was given, um, but they put together what we call now the Woodward-Hoffman rules, which are used to explain the stereospecificity of pericyclic reactions for our organic chemists in the, the room. An example of that would be the Diels-Alder reaction. Um, and Dr. Hoffman also believed in community outreach, which is something that's very close to my heart. He served as host to The World of Chemistry, which was a 26-episode TV series broadcast on PBS in the 90s. And I can't say enough, it's such a real privilege to have you here today. So with that, I turn it over to Dr. Hoffman. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. So uh, just uh, uh, please, no photographs even from uh, without flash and not from telephones. It's just that it's distracting during the lecture. But after the lecture, I'll jump up and down for you and do absolutely anything you want me to, selfies included. Uh, okay, so um, I'm very glad to be here, and I have a story to tell you which fits into, uh, I think, into the literary theme of the lecture series, but it's one about chemistry, and it's largely also one about visual arts. And the part of the story that Jennifer didn't tell you, but 
as she said, it took it, it took a few years of college for me to work up uh, the the courage to tell my parents I didn't want to be a real doctor. But I didn't have the courage to tell them that I wanted to be an art historian. That would have killed them. Uh, I was the only child of Jewish uh, immigrant parents, survivors of the Holocaust, as I was, and, uh, and so this would have been very difficult. Uh, I go through the same counseling with respect to Asian American students today, meaning advising them how to tell their parents that they don't necessarily want to be doctors. Um, there's nothing, there is no ethnicity in this. I want to talk to you about chemistry and art, art and chemistry, and the last part, the most difficult, about the uh, spiritual ground that they share. So first, let's talk about chemistry and art. So here are three masterpieces of ancient art. Uh, Wall painting from Luxor in Thebes, a mere 3,500 years old. Um, a, in the center, the gate of Ishtar, which once stood in Babylon, but then through a feat of imperialism for a change not American, the German found its way to Berlin, where you can see it now. And at right, you see a Hellenistic wall painting from around the time of Christ, uh, a period of realistic representation which preceded the Italian Renaissance by 1,500 years. Um, a remarkable episode. There is a blue or a green in these. The blue and the green uh, was always available from a natural source, which is powdered, powdered uh, lapis lazuli, ultramarine, as it was called, and it was always expensive, and the natural product remains expensive. There are a few sources of it. Uh, the blue and the green in here are not from that source. They are from a product of chemistry, and uh, they are called Egyptian blue. They are a product of Egyptian mastery of glass and enamel. It's essentially a glass, sodium carbonate and silica and sand, um, with a copper mineral, and you've seen the blue in turquoise or in malachite. Uh, it's the same kind of blue that is here, that, that is the chromophore that gives it the color. This was an article of commerce 3,500 years ago, and it's, it's a natural thing. Of course, everything is natural to begin with, but then it's transformed through some chemistry, and incidentally, that chemistry, like most of chemistry in civilization up to recent times, did not wait for chemists to make it. It was made by normal human beings, by craftsmen, women, families, that learned how to do it and passed on the techniques, but it does, it does involve chemical transformation. Uh, that's just to show you a little bit of chemistry. Uh, a little bit to the south of us, something else in, in the Yucatan, uh, in uh, Maya art. There was a, there's a vivid blue that you see here that has easily survived indoor and outdoor exposure uh, for, over, for over 500 years. It was used also in a post-colonial period by 
um, Maya craftsmen employed by the Spanish. Uh, here is Juan Gerson uh, in 1562 using the Maya blue. It's a it's very interesting pigment. It took until about just about 30 years ago to figure out what it is. And what it is, is if you can see the vivid blue character there of it in a little bit, what it is is another natural dye that normally cannot be used in, uh, for inorganic outdoor pigment on solids, on paper paint on solids, but is used to dye textiles, and that's indigo. And it is indigo, which is this molecule that's sticking in there. But the Maya craftsmen, again, without waiting for professional chemists, found a way to incorporate the indigo into a special kind of clay that they had, which has a funny name, Palagorskite clay. And it's just that specific clay that can take up the indigo and then protect it from the usual decomposition roots that it has, and that is the Maya blue. In general, painters in the West, especially oil painters, have been rather conservative on what they've introduced into their palette, the kind of pigments that they are sure will persist in oil paintings for a long time. Modern artists aren't so careful about what they use, but uh, the classical oil painting, there are only a few pigments that have been introduced. One is Prussian blue, again a product of human transformation with a very definite date of invention, the first decade of the 18th century. In the 20th century, thalocyanine blues and greens are so vivid and they have to be persistent with respect to deterioration by light. That is what does in the indigo uh, that I mentioned. And they are, and there is now synthetic ultramarine. There is now synthetic, that beautiful blue, uh, which was used by many artists in the Italian Renaissance. And now they're coming in some replacements for cadmium yellow and red. But I would say conservatively, that um, about two-thirds of the pigments used by a modern good oil painter are still the same ones that were used in the Italian Renaissance. And only about one-third have entered from, from the chemistry. Uh, this is, of course, an episode in human history which is an interaction of a science and art and a very definite intrusion of chemistry into art, and this is photography. Anyone who has developed a print will never forget not only the red light, but also the smell of the chemicals that are involved in the developer and then in the printing, and as the image comes floating up, and we'll also realize how it's controlled. You're fortunate to have here in the chemistry faculty, a faculty member, Ethan Galagli, who is very interested in photography and who, can, uh, who has brought this to some of you, this experience. Um, this is a vanishing sensation.
for young people. It was common in our time. I would urge you to go through this, in part for the science, but that's the trivial part, in part for the image, because what you learn when you develop a photograph is that you can control the image, and that photography is not just representation, but it's much more than that. Uh, so that's why I, I faded out the colors from this, because this, unfortunately, is a difficult thing. Now, so what do we have? We have what you have. What's in your screens? What's in my screen? What's in the projector here? Phosphors, liquid crystals, and OLEDs. And do you think that these have less chemistry than the photographic process? They have much more chemistry in them. But in the typical way of the modern world, and that goes for weapons as well as for chemicals, there is a process of alienation that you have been removed from handling the chemicals, from handling the bombs that are dropped on other people. Um, you no longer, you, you don't deal with the phosphorus and the lipids. That's something for the Sony factory chemists to do. And that's a sad thing, that we are removed from what we use, our tools. That's the first part of the talk. That's very easy, and it could easily be another talk. That's chemistry and art. That's this part. Now let's talk about art and chemistry. Now things are getting more interesting. So the first thing here is the first two pages of an article I wrote um, when was this? 2012, just four years ago, in a leading chemical journal. And I don't want you to read it. That's why I didn't make it large enough. Uh, it doesn't matter what it's about. What I want you to notice, of course, is the large proportion of the page that's taken up by drawings. Uh, those drawings are produced by a computer, every one of them. They used to be, I used to, uh, trace them in pencil, and there is a, a I, in pencil on tracing paper, there was a draftswoman, Jane Jorgensen, in a nearby village to Ithaca, who, whose children I put through college by having her do these drawings in India ink on tracing paper also. And uh, that's another vanishing art. And, but eventually, they are drawings and they are produced by the computer, but they are composed by a human being. And therefore, they become art, a very primitive art, because choices are made about the presentation. Those choices emerge from my interaction with the audience that I have for this. And they're designed to enhance communication. It's not just me. It's Here's a... Here's a another paper by a friend of mine. But you can see the large number of drawings of varying quality and composition that one sees in these. So the first thing is that chemists make drawings. Uh, here, this was, I was very glad to find it, but there's a little bit of cultural history here too. So this is the proverbial, the proverbial Chinese restaurant nap napkin which is a record of scientific communication 
you go out with your colleagues after giving a chemistry seminar and you talk about what you are doing and what I want you to see is the, the scribblings. The point is that chemists cannot talk to each other without drawing molecules. That's the point of this. The, thing, the reason what makes, it a, what makes this a cultural document and dates this is you notice here it says Men's Faculty Club of Columbia University. That vanished in 1980. You cannot have a men's faculty club any longer. Um, and uh, there is an interesting, but I was so happy to, that's the only napkin I found preserved. I've been saving them since then. But that's the only one I found that I can show you. So what is going on here is you have something a little more or a little more involved about the art that is in chemistry. What you have in chemistry is you have a group of people, chemists, you, who are chemists, to whom communication of three-dimensional structures is essential and sometimes a matter of life or death in the sense that a something differing as subtly from a molecule as being its mirror image, like a left hand from a right hand, can be harmful instead of being benevolent. So you have to communicate that. But this, that set of people to whom this is a matter of life or death are not talented at doing so. Uh, that that uh, there is a group of people to whom a task has been given and are not talented at doing so, that's a definition of life. Uh, but um, we're faced with that all the time. So what happens? What happens to, in that situation? What happens is in an organic chemistry course, you have a lab, a workshop, where you manipulate three-dimensional models while you in draw in the most primitive visual code that you can imagine, where wedge means in front of this two-dimensional screen and a dashed line means in back of the two-dimensional screen. You communicate this. And what does this mean? It does, it's, a, it's a semiotics. It's a way of communication. It's a set of symbols which it communicates that three-dimensional character to other people who have been introduced into the code. And probably means very little to people who have not been introduced. But what is very important is this part over here. And that is that, and what this emphasizes is something that psychologists have studied and know, that there is a deep visual tactile link cognitive tactile link between two senses, touch and what goes on in the brain. So that when you manipulate this while drawing this, forever after the three-dimensionality of these things is imprinted in your mind, you will have a very hard time forgetting this because it is so primal while touching something to to draw it and to think about it, it's actually three senses. 
Uh, let's go on a little bit with the art and chemistry. Chemistry is the art, craft, business, and now eventually science of substances and their transformations. Uh, I didn't know if this lecture room would allow me to blow anything up, so I, I had to bring three pictures. Here are two substances, aluminum and bromine. One is placed into the other one. There is flames smoke, foul odors, absolutely everything you expected of chemistry. And at the end of it, there is something fundamentally different. This equation, A plus B going to C plus D, and for my chemical friends, I do know about equilibrium, that it goes back. <laughs> um, but this chemical equation of transformation is the essence of chemistry, and it touches a deep psychological root in human beings of transformation, which also powers a lot of chemistry, a lot of art. First of all, the simple things. Here's a page from some drawings by a great organic chemist, R.B. Woodward. And it really doesn't matter what he's conveying. Obviously, pictures of molecules in a way I've told you subject to these various visual codes that he draws this. There are little visual designs which are very primitive, but just enough to give you a three-dimensionality. I want you to appreciate those little codes. That little bit of breaking the line in back for the line in front, that's the only thing in this whole picture which allows you to see this as a three-dimensional object. It's a, it's a tiny little device. But what a world it makes of a difference if it weren't there, if those two lines crossed and one were not broken for the other one. Um, but what I want to show, what I want you to notice is the, is the arrows in this. There are arrows in these things. Those are the A plus B going to C plus D transformation. And those arrows show up elsewhere. Here's Paul Clay, a great Swiss artist of the 20th century. And his art is just full of uh, contemplation of primal forces. Uh, this thing at lower left is called Eros. Uh, very interesting in, in its composition and the emotional content. These things are very colorful, but throughout them, in all of them, there is arrow. There are arrows hidden or explicit over here, showing motion, forces, relationships, and it's very interesting to, to see that. Go in another direction on art. Here is a molecule. The molecule is taxol, or its official name. You don't want to know its official name. Uh, it's called taxol. It's uh, become a component of a modern chemotherapy. It's very useful against certain kinds of tumors. Uh, it kind of was originally isolated from the bark of a yew tree. Uh, from the bark of a tree, and taking that bark killed the tree, so it was from dead trees initially. Um, they isolated the substance and proved its efficacy. And, of course, that's not the way to, uh, to make a useful pharmaceutical out of something if it takes a 300-year-old tree 
and you kill the tree, and out of that you get four doses of the drug that is still more expensive than all those horrible things that you've read about. Uh, but so that what one has to do is to make the thing synthetically or semi-synthetically. We could talk about that. Anyway, here are two pictures of the molecule, uh, representations which are interesting of themselves. You see a few wedges and dashed lines. But I, what, I, what I want to, I use this slide in just to motivate uh, that the fact that people are trying to synthesize this. Okay, so people, why are they trying to synthesize this? Because the natural product, it is a natural product, is not given in, uh, to us in abundance. So you have to make it synthetically. So if you look in Wikipedia, which has all kinds of things in it, as you know, but among these, you could look up the synthesis of taxol, and you'll find seven to nine syntheses of this molecule of some complexity, which is listed at the top here. And this is the third synthesis of taxol. Now, just this is there's something interesting going on here. Here's a molecule that's a goal for synthetic chemists around the world to make. And someone made it for the first time, just like the Norwegian explorer that I was named after, Roald Amundsen, was the first person to reach the South Pole in nine, December 1911. Um, there was a first time. The second and third guys to reach the pole, well, the second guy was Robert Scott, and he had a romantic death, so he is remembered. But I tell you, the third and fourth and fifth are not remembered. But here is the third synthesis of Taxol. You can publish this in the Prime Chemical Journal. Why can you publish it? <laughs> because there is an art to the making of the molecule. Because the molecule can be made in ways which are more efficient, but also more elegant in some ways, taking fewer steps involving uh, having fewer side products. Uh, here, what's being drawn for you is what's called a retrosynthetic analysis. He's taking the molecule apart. That's what these arrows are, tracing this kind of pathway down to something which you can, which you can bu uh, buy commercially. happens to be a natural product for cents a pound. Okay? And now what he does is he goes the other way around. But he's tracing for you. He goes from the simple to the complex. Uh, but what's interesting here is, is the, that there is an art to doing this in some way evidenced by the fact you can publish it. Again, I could go on for a lecture on this. But let's talk about something more difficult, which is the spiritual ground that chemistry and art share. That transformations is part of the story. And on, uh, that transformations is a, transformations are a very spiritual thing. Um, we want them. 
we fear them. Uh, we have, are ambiguous about change. Um, there are trans, this is, this is in the flag of Mexico and uh, one of my favorite foods. Um, maybe I'll get some here, maybe not. There's a bigger chance of getting it in the LA area than there is in, in Ithaca. Um, and um, um, does it help us to know that there is a chemical side to the chilies reno um, that, are, that we saw? Yes, I think so, it, but it has to do also with transformation. Part of the transformation is in the cooking, the cooking, the raising the chilies and the other ingredients. Uh, and then in, uh, there are pomegranate seeds here also, and the color and the composition and the cooking are part of the story. But in, behind this story are some transformations which are wrought by chemistry. And one of them is a remarkably successful transformation which quietly has become over the period of 110 years the most single most successful industrial process in this world. And this is the so-called Haber-Bosch synthesis of ammonia from nitrogen in the atmosphere. Now, uh, let me tell you how successful it is by telling you that half the nitrogen atoms in your bodies, where are the nitrogen atoms? They're in nucleic acids, they're in the there are the amino acids, a lot of them in every molecule of value in your body, proteins. These, uh, half the nitrogen atoms in your bodies have seen the inside of a Haber-Bosch factory. Or uh, half the people in this world wouldn't be alive if it were we didn't have this particular source of the fertilizer and nitrogen. Now, there is still more chemistry behind it. There's chemistry behind the natural product. If you believe that the nitrogen should come all naturally, even then there is some interesting chemistry because it is only because we, the pinnacle of evolution, don't know how to turn nitrogen of the atmosphere into the nitrogen that's in useful form in our bodies. We breathe in the nitrogen from the atmosphere, 80% of the atmosphere, we breathe it out, and it causes no trouble except the divers rising from uh, under the sea. Neither is it used in any way, a real mistake of evolution. And we and all higher animals, higher, quote, unquote, are dependent on lowly bacteria symbiotic with the roots of leguminous plants for the process of nitrogen fixation. Uh, and that is what this little picture is meant to show. And even then, there is a wonder there waiting. There is an enzyme. How do the bacteria do it? They do it with an enzyme which contains at its active site a cluster of seven molybdenums and an iron atom. 
what the heck is molybdenum doing there? Uh, but it is in nitrogenase. Uh, here is the Haber-Bosch process. This is the natural process. Uh, transformation. Transformation has intrigued human beings. Here is an episode from human culture in which was an intersection of chemistry and science, in some ways like photography was. Uh, but this is when a philosophy of transformation, this is my image of this, that when a philosophy of transformation, arcane and often and hermetic, closed up, often in trouble with churches and religions who wanted to have a monopoly on transformation, when, but partaking of the same basic roots in human beings tied up in our myths. And to me, myth is a very good word. Um, tied up in our myths. What myths am I talking about? I'm talking about Persephone rising from the dead, about Phoenix rising from the ashes, about reincarnation, about the resurrection. All of these are transformations back to life in one way. The plant's growing again. These are very fundamental myths of transformation. And the people who ran the religions of this world wanted to have a monopoly on these myths. And alchemy, that's what I'm talking about, is a, was a philosophy that saw it in a, another way. And when it needed to get into people's minds with, um, it found a chemistry because chemistry was done before chemists. The origins of alchemy are old. Uh, chemists doing transformation. So it took, uh, so they adopted chemistry as a way to get, in, I think, into people's mind with, for, with an abstruse philosophy, but found themselves co opted by chemistry and started doing good chemistry experiments and became part of what led to chemistry. Here's a typical chemical illustration, so you can see the wonder of these things. In the background is a, a king and a queen getting married by a bishop, and in front are some people doing experiments. Now, it was given to me in the 1960s to go to a few hippie weddings in California here, and I saw some chemistry at them. But it wasn't this kind of chemistry. This chemistry is serious chemistry. You can see this from the vessels that are being used, and, but yet it's juxtaposed with this wedding. It's obvious that this is a, a symbolic equation which goes between the chemistry and what is happening in the background. So the usual view of alchemy is not that. It's pseudoscience. And yet, chemists take the chemistry that alchemists gave us. Uh, they made the strong mineral acids. Chemists ignore totally the underlying philosophy of alchemy because it's complicated and not very organized. And then they laugh a little nervously about at the charlatanry that inevitably accompanied things like the transformation of lead into gold. But alchemy is really an interaction of chemistry with culture, a remarkable one. 
uh, and uh, the Mircea Eliade, a historian of religion, philosopher of ideas, uh, said it well. He said, modern chemists screaming to high heaven that they had nothing in the world to do with alchemy. They are scientists. Those guys were pseudo-scientists. But they have accomplished absolutely everything the alchemists set out to do. And what he meant was when Merck sharpened down takes simple chemicals taken from natural products and transforms them into pharmaceuticals that, that really heal. And we pay gold for those pharmaceuticals, or our governments pay gold. They've accomplished exactly what the alchemists set out to do. They've transformed dirt into gold. Um, Okay, I want to take the still more difficult, <coughs> but yet something which to me forms a spiritual ground, and that is a connection through abstraction. I want to ask a, a question which at first sight seems outlandish. Could there be such a thing as abstract science? And what I mean is in, like there is abstract art. Would there be abstract science? Here's an example of an abstraction. It's, it's, not a, it's not a model of a house. It's a container of some sort. It's made by a very good sculptor at Cornell, Roberto Bertoia. And right is a molecule. Now what, what is going on here? So, and here are two more uh, things. One are recognizable color fields by Rothko. Um, clearly abstraction. Uh, at right, a leading Mexican painter, Manel Pujol Baladas, uh, whom I know, whose work I like. Uh, these are recognizable instantly as abstract works of science. You may like them, you may not like them. We'll come back to what, what makes us like them or not, but they're recognized as abstraction. Now, abstraction is old. Here is something 5,000 years old. Uh, that's a Japanese ceramic. This is uh, uh, Andean cultures from the region that are now Peru. Uh, this is actually a textile at right. Um, and uh, remarkably well-preserved and about 1,500 years old or so. Now, the abstraction in these... Uh, there is a, a little red flag that goes up. The red flag says, you think this is abstract, but the people who made this didn't think it was abstract. Maybe it had some symbolic meaning to them. So we have to recognize that. The, even though the, the lines look abstract, or the symbols, they may have had symbolic meaning. Everything has meaning. Everything has meaning. Uh, we talked about things... Uh, let's talk about these, and don't look at the chemistry now, at the works of art. Very clearly, these are not abstract. These are representational in one way or another. They may be symbolic in both, in every one of these in some way, but they're not abstract. So what is abstraction about? Um, 
this is again, this is a work of art that's very clearly. So we first, before we talk about abstraction and science, let's talk about abstraction and art. This is a landscape by a great Russian painter of a landscape artist at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, Isaac Levitan, a birch forest in Russia. It's clearly not an abstraction. This is the beginning of abstraction in Western culture, at least, in an organized fashion. It's an exhibition by a Russian artist, Kasimir Malevich, in a room, I think in Moscow, uh, where he made lots of black squares. And this was exactly 101 years ago, when in 1915. This is a photograph. Photography had come in by then. Here is what Malevich writes about this. I have destroyed the ring of the horizon and escaped from the circle of things, from the horizon ring which confines the artist. This accursed ring um, leads the artist away, and only a cowardly conscience and meager creative powers in an artist are deceived by this fraud and base their art on the forms of nature. He doesn't like the Levitan painting. I just showed you. You can be sure. Instead, he's painting squares. He says, to reproduce beloved objects in little corners of nature is just like a thief being enraptured by his legs and irons. The square is not a subconscious form. It is the creation of intuitive reason. It is the face of the new art. Okay. So what is science going to run away from if it wants to generate the equivalent of abstraction? Of course, natural molecules, the molecules of nature. But you have to know them to see them. This is a molecule of nature. This is the hemoglobin molecule. It's an abstraction of it. The hydrogen atoms are not there. This plasticky thing is just the helices, the outline of the carbon-nitrogen chain along this. Uh, uh, but you do see the, the uh, rings of the so-called heme groups with the iron in the middle where the oxygen carrying is actually done. This is most definitely a molecule in nature and a mistake of in its one of its four subunits of one amino acid out of the 146 that is in that subchain is responsible for sickle cell anemia. These are natural molecules. What abstract science is going to run away from is that. It's going to make molecules well, for which are appealing. In some ways, as appealing as the square that Malevich made. And these are molecules that have a beeline into our soul because they are symmetrical a molecule which is uh, a, a tetrahedron cube, dodecahedron of carbons with a hydrogen outside, then this molecule, which should be on a flag of Brazil, um, which uh, is, um, uh, has no hydrogens on it. Uh, these are molecules that are all made synthetically. Though the last one, there are some it could have been made naturally, too. There is some thought of that. Uh, these are, uh, here is another way of fighting nature. So in nature, those, you remember these, uh, these uh, plasticky tapes here. 
this helix, it's made up of something called amino acids. Amino acids, it's a biopolymer. There's a chain, nitrogen, carbon, carbon, and that chain is repeated. And they're called the normal amino acids that you find in every protein in our bodies. Every amino acid of every protein is an alpha amino acid. Well, someone said, let's make some so-called beta amino acids. So what are beta amino acids? Instead of one carbon in here, uh, we'll have two carbons in here. And then they said, oh, you can get the 20 amino acids by, uh, those are different substituents for one of the hydrogens in here. Oh, you have lots more hydrogens to substitute here, so you have more games to play. More games to play with something totally unnatural. But maybe, actually, behind this utility is hiding. Could it be that some aspects of the chemistry of the body which want the natural amino acids, these guys that left, might be fooled by the unnatural amino acids. And wouldn't it be nice if the bugs in us were fooled by them, but we not? The chemistry. So there is a potential pharmaceutical utility in the synthetic amino acids, but they're, they're patently unnatural. They are abstract art at play, abstract science. Now, if that's not enough for you, here is Ned Seaman at NYU, who has taken natural DNA and engineered a way that the DNA molecules arrange themselves in a cube. That's not what DNA molecules want to do. Um, so this is, this is play, obviously playing games. Malevich. Now, you can get just that far in the art or the science by being against something. So Malevich, in his statement, says he's that the, the people who are stupid are those who reproduce beloved objects in little corners of nature. But, you know, to be against something is a not very good stance in the long run. It's easily recognized by people and gets to be, it may be pretty for a while, but it gets to be tiresome. And so what people want to do is to create a, uh, a rationale for doing abstraction. And he, he does it right away in his first statement. It is the first step of pure creation and art. Before it, there were naive deformities and copies of nature. He said copies of nature are naive. But when we look at the elements of art, so what are the elements of a work of art? Well, you've seen color, for instance is one element. Another one is form, that you have a shape, and that shape has some relationship with respect to the inside of the painting and the outside of the painting, and it takes on a certain shape. Uh, the shape may be a square. So what he's saying is, let's concentrate on these artistic elements. 
And this intent in, is very well carried out by the successors to Malevich. This is one of my favorite abstract artists of the 20th century, Ad Reinhardt. Uh, remarkable color fields, but he's really playing here with form and color uh, in this. And they are, they are pleasing in, in a number of ways. You, if you see them alive, so to speak, it's even better. Here's Roberto Bertoia. Roberto Bertoia makes little wooden structures. These are not very big. They're not as big as they're projected to be here. They're at most a half meter long or so. Uh, they're maybe a half a third of the size that you see on the screen here. They are enclosures. They have spaces. They have windows. They have holes. He's obviously interested in the nature of confining space and how space breaks through to the inside, to the outside. What is the inside or the outside of a sculpture? Yet he works in wood, which is an element of human constructions of houses, and it's very interesting. Uh, I find these very pleasing objects. And uh, here is something else, a lead, leading Mexican ceramic artist that I like, Gustavo Perez. And he... Um, makes these, this is a, a rather programmatic piece about the sculpture evolving, uh, but, or devolving, rather the other way around into this. But he's also playing with shape mainly in these and with the effects of lines in this one. He's taking one element of art and he's playing with it. And the results are pleasing. Now, uh, you remember the synthesis of Taxol. You don't remember it, and I don't expect you to remember it. But you remember this slide where there was the third synthesis of Taxol done by a friend of mine, Sam Donishevsky, who is at, the, at Columbia University uh, and uh, Sloan Kettering. Uh, and he's, he's building this... Sorry, I have to go back. He's going to build this up from here up to, uh, to, the, to the more complicated. On the way, in building it up, he has to form CC bonds. So somehow he combines this molecule with that molecule, and there's some bond formed. Well, there are some chemists who, are, who say, I'm not really interested in a total synthesis. I'm interested in the many ways to form a carbon-carbon bond. Why? Because that's used in the construction of more complex molecules. So if you look in Wikipedia, that great source, there are 102 pages on carbon-carbon bond-forming reactions. This is the beginning of an index. This is one that students learn in a course where you, uh, words reduction, where you take an Rx with a sodium and you combine this, you make that so, then you combine these and you get a new carbon-carbon bond. These are names, they carry the names of people, sometimes they carry the names of reactions. This is an obsession of chemists with a formal issue in chemistry, how to form bonds. And in that sense, it has a lot of resemblance 
to Ed Reinhardt playing, but it also has interesting consequences. Another element of abstraction, almost from the beginning, is giving chance, and I mean wild chance, its due, the aleatory. And I don't have to put the name of this macro character. This is, um, this is the prime um, abstract artist uh, at work here. Uh, but if you look at his detail of what he did, it's not, uh, it's not as it's not quite as abstract as it is. I want to just shift away from, to another aspect of art which gives chances to do. This happens to be Japanese ceramics. Uh, in Japan, ceramics is high art. Why it is so and not here is an interesting question. Um, but uh, this is a particular school, uh, uh, Bizen, and the pattern that you see on the object, the object is obviously constructed by a human being, but the pattern on it comes from how the kiln was loaded with wood and plants. And I assure you that many equal quality basic objects were destroyed by the artist while he let this out because there was something special about what chance occasioned in the pattern that was formed here. So what would be the equivalent in chemistry? Uh, there are uh, not too many things, but there are a few things. There's something called combinatorial chemistry, which is a little bit like this. So if you want to devise a drug which binds to some target, instead of trying to make molecule by molecule knowing the groups in the target with which groups on a molecule might interact, instead of making that, why not make a library of lots of building blocks which are not the whole thing, but maybe four of them come together to give the potential drug, and then the, you have to have some reaction that goes easily that builds what is called Scientists are wonderful at inventing names for what they don't know. And this is called a dynamic combinatorial library. Wonderful. It rolls off the tongue. And it, what it is is a, a semi-infinite array of all combinations of the building blocks. And then you let them together with a target. You put them together with a target and you let nature decide which one binds best. And you isolate it. You have to have good analytical chemistry and to know, and then you can find out that it is that combination, and then you can make that combination synthetically. But this is allowing chance its role, to play its role. This is the last thing about uh, abstraction and science. And there is a problem. There is a bit of a problem. In general, abstract art, even as hot as Frank Stella's constructions are, and I tell, these are incidentally massive. These are now uh, five to 10 times the size that they are on the screen. Um, uh, or this is a Cleveland artist, Julian Stanchek, who does 
clearly abstraction in some way. There is something about abstraction. Abstraction has trouble. It has the trouble is reaching the emotions. It's cool inherently. And conceptual art, which is another art form, also has that problem. These things may be smart in some way, but do they reach the emotions? And in some way, the molecules have that problem too. They are emotionally cool. Now, I assure you that if you've had a relative whose life has been saved by Taxol, you do not feel cool about it. So it, it all matters. It, it matters whether you have a personal involvement with that molecule. But they are cool. Now, what can I say? Here is the Rothko Chapel in Houston. It has in it not your bright Rothkos with bright color fields, but it has, as you see here, blacks and purples. And here is another shot of this. And it's a chapel. It's a chapel. It's a contemplative place with no religious symbols at all of any religion. It's a contemplative place covered with Rothko paintings. And I have seen people not only um, contemplate there, but also cry. Uh, they're obviously the paintings, like anything that you focus on, can often make you think of many other things. Um, this is where I wanted to play a YouTube, but I uh, we don't. We're not going to try. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I haven't really been very. I've been talking about visual arts because that's what I know about. I haven't been talking about music. Now, music has music is very interesting because some music is representational. Here is a song written by Paulinho da Viola, and I give it in the original Portuguese here, Brazilian Portuguese. Um, but uh, you can look for translations, and I wish you would look for the recording, specifically of Marisa Monte singing, uh, singing this. Uh, this song makes me cry. Now, in part, it makes me cry because there was a great love in my life who was Brazilian, there is a reason, but everyone has had a great love um, and may not be Brazilian. Um, but it, there's something about music that makes us cry. What is more interesting is other music, like instrumental music. Uh, and here is some of the most uh, sublime music I know, which are the Haydn piano trios. Three instruments. What is, what is that music? That music is a sequence of sounds where the timing and the pitch are varied. It is the most abstract thing in the world that I could imagine. And yet it can make you cry. Uh, representational to extent, if the song has lyrics. But actually that's probably not 
for what makes you cry. It's probably the melody. And in Haydn, it is just the, the beauty of the material. Uh, here is Ed Reinhardt on this. Um, some claim to represent nature, hell on earth, sick society, in their turmoil, wild beasts and things as they are. May not one side of me speak up for the side of the angels? A little bit less aggressive than Malevich was in carving out a space for abstraction. And down at the bottom, a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke, which I give here in German. And you can read an English translation. Angels, angels are terrifying uh, in some ways. And he, he talks about that. Uh, and here, this is, of course, a scene from a great Wim Wenders movie um, in which there are angels over Berlin. Um, but um, I want to finish just with one thing for the young people. I've finished my story. I've told you my story of chemistry. Let me remind what I said. Chemistry and art, I had it before, art in chemistry, and the spiritual ground they share. And I've tried very hard to, to tell you what I see in them. But there, there's something a little bit different that I want because, and I put this in because I knew there would be young people in the audience, uh, because you are in the audience, and that's good. Here, and what I want to tell you is, is something about the accessibility of these masterworks. And they may be uh, Danza de Celidon and the Haydn piano trios, they look like masterworks, as that they are. They look like, how could I possibly do it? I know I had that feeling in chemistry. So looking at masterworks, here are two masterworks, a periodic table of the elements, constructed initially by a Russian in 19... 1850, 1867, 68. And here is a great poem from the English language, and that makes a transition to what we're going to do next. And that is um, William Blake's The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. When you see this, and I'm, maybe I'm just talking about myself, but I think I'm talking about you too. When I saw this, I, I wanted to do something good in chemistry. How could I possibly aspire, knowing all the faults that I have, to do something new and original? So let me bring you good news. The good news involves that you must not look at the masterpiece. You must look at how it was made. And for that, you have to consult other specialists, historians of science, historians of literature, literary critics. But I'll help you. Here are the last drafts of these two. This is Mendeleev's table. He has a shopping list of the elements. He fits them into a table. You just have to turn it by 90 degrees. He's writing in a mixture of Russian and German. Here is William Blake. He's got a phrase up there, dread grasp. And it, dare grasp. It doesn't fit in there. He crosses it out. 
he knows he's got a poetic phrase, meaning he's got two words that mean more than those two words. They have resonances. He tries to get them in here. They don't fit in here. Eventually, he gets them in uh, somewhere in this poem. Uh, this is a salvage job, but what a salvage job. What's the most beautiful thing about this? And that's the last thing I want to leave you. The most beautiful thing about this is the crossing out. This is the prima facie evidence that these are created by human beings. People like you and me just trying, putting pen to paper, thinking about the elements. You can do it as well as I can, as well as these people did. Thank you. Now you can take pictures, everyone. <laughs> Lots of pictures. How do you want to handle this? Uh, let's see. What, we have 10 minutes because I talk too long. That's what, I, that's what professors do. But David and I, um, we're not going to let you go without us reading some poems because that is the reason I am here. And that's because David Burek and I participated in a little uh, workshop at Cornell University in his post-radical days. And we, together with two professional poets, met and read poems for each other. Poems mean a lot to me. They mean a lot to David, uh, too. Uh, we'd like to read to you some of our poems. And David, why don't you do that first? Thank you, Ro. I'd, I'd be happy to. Although given the time limitations and the uh, fact that I'm aware that you all came to hear Roald Hoffman, not whatever his name is, no. uh, <laughs> I'm just going to read one poem from a chapbook that was published here uh, actually uh, a decade and a half ago or more by our colleague Ernesto Padilla uh, in Lalo Press. Ernie has the distinction of also having published one of the first uh, small collections of poetry by Juan Felipe Herrera. And for those of you who follow poetry, you know Herrera became the first Latino poet laureate of the United States just a little less than a year ago. So in any case, here's my poem in that tradition. It's called On Relationships Between Us. I wrote of sacred callings, belonging and longing, spin-offs of time and the shifting lattices of love and disregard. Poems in a notebook that was missing after I threw out the trash. I couldn't reach the grocery bag deep in the dumpster. Many people were walking by. I didn't want to be seen foraging, so waited till early next day. Hoisted myself into the large metal cube. An old black man came around the corner just as I was gazing at an open pizza box, wondering what the withered slices would look like if heated. The man stared at me. I'm looking for some poetry, 
I said. Aren't we all, he said. And with that, I give you Roald Hoffman. Very good. Thank you. Great. Um, there may be... So, um, I have four books for sale at a bargain price of $10 each, and I'll sign them for you. And I actually have 25 pages of handouts, uh, so the, whoever wants to see some of the poems afterwards can come and, and pick them up here. Uh, I guess you... <laughs> the weird thing is the, the science and the poetry, and do they have anything to do with each other? In my life, yes, I'm here. I'm doing them both. But in, in general, and does it does it does one influence the other? Those are questions that people want to know, and I'll be glad to answer them in in personal things. But let me. In general, it's been difficult to write for me poems about science that work in some way as poems. But I I have a few, and I I'll read you one. Um, called Tsunami. Um, tsunami, mathematically, is something called a soliton, a solitary wave. A soliton is a singularity of wave motion, an edge traveling just that way. We saw one once, Filmed moving heedlessly across a platinum surface. Solitons pass through each other unperturbed. You are a wave, not standing, nor traveling, satisfying no equation. You are a wave which will not be Fourier analyzed. You are a wave in your eyes, I sink willingly. Not solitons. We can't pass through unaltered. So is this a poem about solitons or is it about something else? Uh, you read an, another one. Um, The Bering Bridge. It has the word California in it as the last word of the poem, so it makes sense. But it was written in a different part of California. It was written in the Santa Cruz Mountains, just south of San Francisco. Um, the Bering Bridge, the name here is the land bridge between the Americas and, and Asia. The old men say the sky was once so close that if you shot an arrow up it would bounce back at you. The sky swallowed birds. Sometimes it lay like the luxuriating fog just above our tents. And a man could climb to the opening at the top where the smoke went out and talk to the gods. Then the redwoods came, searching, sacrificing all to the main trunk and they jacked up the sky, and then men with balloons and telescopes pushed it back further, so it became difficult to talk straight to the gods. One had to yell or use the intercession of shamans. Now I have flown myself across the Pacific 
seen the deep sky blue at 30,000 feet. They say a man has walked on a moon. They say the earth is getting warmer. I see smog, the sky coming back down over California. David, one more. One more. Yes, you. Yes, give David a hand. Let's give a hand for Jimmy Surakawa and Leo Nakamura for doing the tech work. Without their help, this would not have been successful. Uh, Okay, so this is called Lamentation Number 8. Giovanni, adopted son of Venezia, who made it in the film business for a while, lost the lovely roof that had been over his head for many years. Some friends and it said a portion of Gio's mind had drifted into the sea of delusion. As with many souls who have been estranged from reality as we know it, and whom we see in makeshift tents behind the palace of gold, that's gold the gym in case you didn't catch the reference. Giovanni was once a prime attraction in the circus of derangement. He attracted admirers who whispered about how Gio had entered a state of altered consciousness for more than 1,000 nights with only naps in the mornings and afternoons. The diet of this curly-haired rebel son consists of utopian dreams, sunflower seeds, raisins, and homemade brownies. He spends his nights at the International House of Mirrors, gazing at images of himself and others who live in past fantasies. So this is actually an homage to an old friend of mine who uh, went off the deep end after some success in the film business. And it's kind of a cautionary tale, like don't let it happen to you. Thank you very much. (laughs) So I'm going to read one more poem to close it, then we'll let the people go. It's called Enough Already, and it's set in Provence in France. Um, So there are olive trees there. Enough Already. You walk into the sun-splashed olives, mossy trunks, greener than fresh grass. This doesn't seem to be enough. So you think, even here, they grow olives only on warm terraces, and ask, Who was first found olives had to be cured? This cleverness, too, does not satisfy. So, walking hand in hand into the grove, you say, the world needs us and other lovers to give such life, which would do nicely for most, save those who would leave it for a creator. But then, alone, you look real close, and the black spot on the green bark you reach for sharpens into inch and a half of scorpion. You see a red beetle, and by God, that does suffice. All right. Thank you so much, Roald. Here's here's a token of our appreciation from the associates who made this event possible, too. Thank you. And... uh, 
For those of you in the chem club in particular, if you want to join us for lunch, or those of you interested in further discussions of poetry. And, and uh, buy the books because, uh, you know. He's uh, broke. When, he spent all his no, Nobel no, no, Prize. No, no. It's, it's just, <laughs> it, I told you, it took my mother 20 years to get over the fact that I didn't become a real doctor. And then when I started writing poetry, I got it all over again. She said, they're going to fire you <laughs> from the job. So I want you to prove my mother wrong, and it's possible to make a living as a poet. And Roloff and waived his honorarium to be with us today. We just paid for the transportation and accommodation. So that made it possible. Thank, thank you again, Roloff. Thank you all for coming. You've been a great audience. Love you both all. <laughs>